This is not a Beyonce concert, and it's not the finals of the World Cup. No, this is the sound of a crowd of people, mostly women, watching as Prince William walks into his first day of university at St. Andrews in 2001. Yeah, right, Beyonce could only dream of having a crowd like this. I jest, I jest. But in this video, you do see proper crowds of people lining the street there to welcome, well, the future king and a young man who back then was a bit of a heartthrob. I mean, I think actually we can say very much a heartthrob. And I think that's because he was just so the image of Diana. And he was, well, he was gorgeous. Just gorgeous. Yeah. He looks so happy and laid back, too. He's got this fluffy early 2000s haircut. And nobody knew it yet, but his future wife had already moved into her room in the same building. Yes, but she nearly didn't live in those halls. In fact, she was meant to study at another Scottish university, the University of Edinburgh. But right before the deadline, she decided to go to a different school. Not too long after the news broke that Prince William would be attending St. Andrews. Which was risky because admissions went through the roof when William announced he was going to be going. So for whatever reason, and I suppose only she knows why, she turned that place down at Edinburgh and took a place at St. Andrews. William and Kate, in their first year at this very small university in a tiny coastal town, living in the same halls... I mean, it was the perfect setting for the opening scene of, well, one of the 21st century's most famous royal love stories. But we're not just talking about a love story. And the situation is so much more than just fodder for tabloid editors. To the monarchy, the entire institution of marriage is essential for its survival. Sure. And for William, this love story was taking place in a family reeling from a disastrous decade of broken marriages, scandals, public affairs. And so was the future king. He didn't have the luxury of trial and error. His choice of partner had to be right, and it had to be right first time round. Welcome to Vanity Fair's Dynasty, The Windsors. Episode 2, Kate and Her King. In this episode, we'll look at William and Kate's love story from college days to fairy tale wedding and the near decade in between. Writer and Vanity Fair contributor Michelle Ruiz tells us how Kate Middleton overcame some of the snobbery directed towards her family to become a game changer for the royal family. Tatler Magazine's Tori Cadogan explores how influential the Middleton's choice of schools were in moving Kate into the right social circles. And Kristen Meinzer tells us how this royal romance might just save the monarchy. I'm Erin Vanderhoof. And I'm Katie Nichol. From Vanity Fair, this is Dynasty The Windsors. St Andrews has always been super popular. It's just stunning. It's on the beach. It's very small, but it's the oldest university in Scotland, so it's got these stunning buildings. This is Tori Cadogan. She's the education editor for Tatler, one of Britain's longest-running high-society magazines. Tatler covers the elite world and glamorous goings-on of the upper class and super-rich. And it's got a really community feel. It's very safe, very kind of everybody knows each other. Our editor at Tatler, Richard Denham, was studying um, history of art there, and he actually sat next to Catherine in their classes. He says that she was so conscientious and bright and she was also by far the most beautiful girl there. So she obviously shone in every way. 
William, on the other hand, was enjoying not being in the center of attention as much as possible. Everyone I speak to just says that he just had a really normal time there. Like, they would see him in the video shop. It was sort of full of Etonians and and other kind of public school pupils. And of course, public school in Britain is the American equivalent of a private or an independent school. And Eton, which William attended, is as elite as they come. Oh, St. Andrews is one of the most elite universities and very, very popular with the upper classes. I think that's probably because they have charity polo tournaments during the year. I mean, it is such a posh university that bringing your own horses is an option. Ugh, sounds like a hassle. I think I'll be leaving mine at home. But of course, keeping this out of the spotlight takes negotiations. And the royals made an agreement with the UK media that there would be no cameras following Prince William at university. And the payoff was that the media got a few prearranged photo ops and interviews each year of his university life. And actually, it works really well. It wasn't a complete escape from the press. And his protection officers, who had been there with him for his entire life, they did have their own room down the hall. But this was as close as a future king could get. It gave him the freedom to make friends, play sports, grab a beer by himself, have a girlfriend. I think there's very limited social life to the extent that I think someone told me that they hang out at the local Shell Garage and literally it is the Shell Garage. And and nobody leaves because it's miles from anywhere. Okay, a Shell Garage, like a gas station. Yeah. King Will's Mucute was a little uh, nicer than that, right? Oh, it was a lot more glamorous than a petrol station forecourt. Can I please assure you all? But um, no, they actually bumped into each other in the stairs going down to breakfast. Remember, they were at the same halls. And Kate was allowed, actually, the privilege of sitting with William and his friends. And they just got to know each other and became friends, ended up walking to lectures with each other. If William wasn't able to go to a lecture, Kate would share notes. And they loved sports. They'd go swimming together and play tennis together. And they just got along very well. It started as a friendship, but by the second year, it had blossomed into something more. One of the things that I always think about when I think about how lovely their experience at St. Andrews seemed to have been, just in terms of, you know, William getting the freedom to, you know, live in a couple of off-campus houses with his friends and these, like, really idyllic-seeming settings— Having an opportunity to, you know, be a guy in the lectures and learning about something that is not directly related to the role of, like, constitutional monarch. It seems like William met a lot of people who he was able to trust and take seriously. And as you note in your book, they seem to have signed confidentiality agreements along with the Sponsio Academica, the school's honor code, at the beginning of term. Very strange concept to have to sign a confidentiality agreement. But of course, you know, he was a future king and this whole idea was to enable him to have an ordinary existence. So his friends had to legally promise not to leak stories about his activities to the press. And as a result, his experience was remarkably ordinary and very happy. But of course, this ordinary experience wasn't going to last very long. William always knew from... Well, when he was old enough to walk and talk, that he'd be king one day. And that was definitely something that he struggled with as a young man. I mean, he went on a gap year before he started university to Chile, 
But I remember speaking to some people who were out in Chile with him and they recalled a really poignant moment where they were talking about their futures and the jobs that they were going to do. And William said, well, you know, I don't have a choice. I've got to be king. And that's really very hard for anyone to understand and relate to this sense of destiny, but also burden resting on his shoulders. Yeah, he didn't go into university planning to meet the love of his life. But still, there was just extraordinary pressure on him when it came to finding the right partner, because it wasn't just about falling in love. It was about finding the right person to be the future queen of England. Still, St. Andrews provided a bubble of escape from the constant public scrutiny for just a few years. But that bubble popped when they left St. Andrews. And Kate particularly was really exposed. She didn't have the might of the palace machine there to shield her and protect her. And, you know, suddenly there was this big focus, particularly in the media, on the divide between Prince William and the middle-class Middletons, as they became known. So I think there was a lot of classism there regarding Kate. There was, you know, the the coverage talked about Kate and her sister Pippa being the so-called Wisteria sisters. Here's journalist and royal buff Michelle Ruiz, and she's talking about wisteria, you know, the plant. Uh, Highly decorative, terribly fragrant, with a ferocious ability to climb. And that was kind of a nod or an allusion to social climbing. And, you know, I think there was... There was that thread, but then there was also, you know, at the time, people looked to the fact that Prince William was marrying a commoner, and that felt, you know, for 2011, that was, that was evolution for the royal family, that he should be allowed to marry a white, wealthy St. Andrew's classmate who did not have, you know, royalty or nobility in her family lineage. Yeah, it's true. Kate's family didn't come from royal or blue-blooded lineage, but her father, Michael Middleton, did come from a family with money. And his ancestors were significantly wealthy, having made their fortune in the textile industry. And so he was born into relative wealth. So Michael was raised more middle class, if I had to put them into a category, while Carol Middleton was very much from working class origins. I mean, she grew up in a humble townhouse in London and went to state school. She did. And you know what? From a very early age, she was determined to improve her own social situation. And she was the business brains of the family. It was Carol who had the idea to start this kitchen table business, essentially packaging up party paraphernalia for children's parties. And that was the business that went on to become hugely prolific and very successful. They eventually moved to a new neighborhood and gave Kate and her siblings access to a whole different world. A world, it turned out, that they would flourish in. They absolutely flourished and they moved house into a much bigger property called Oakacre, which was actually nicknamed the Middleton's Mansion. And it was a beautiful house on the village green in Bucklebury, which is a very sweet, rather twee, very English village. And their house was one of the nicest on the green. Town, but a village. What you see behind me is pretty much it. All we have on this side of the road is the village pub and the local butchers, but it's very charming. There's these beautiful thatched roofs and old homes and there's some lovely big country estates, but in terms of a town centre, this is it. It was a pretty privileged upbringing that Pippa and Kate and, and their brother James enjoyed growing up, Carol having grown up in that tiny 
house in Southall and going to state school, you know, realised that that she wanted a better life for herself in later life and she wanted a better start for for her children. In general, parents who choose to pay to go to private school, because this ensures like really small class sizes, focused teaching, specific um, subject teachers, as well as abundant opportunities. Here's Tatler's Tori Cadogan again. It's not cheap. We're talking in the region of about £45,000 a year for full boarding. So once you take into account tax and national insurance payments, you're going to need to earn very roughly around £70,000 per annum per child. A 2019 study from the British government found that Britain's most influential people are over five times more likely to have been to a fee-paying school. Yet just 7% of the population are privately educated. When she was 14, Kate's parents sent her to the prestigious boarding school Marlborough College, which costs about £40,000 or just over $50,000 each year. I mean, it's one of the best schools in the country and it's co-ed, which Kate seemed to prefer. The school honestly outstrips my imagination when it comes to how perfectly British it seems. They have very proper uniforms, and when Kate was a pupil there, the youngest girls wore your more typical below-the-knee plaid skirts, but the oldest girls wore all of these ankle-length black skirts as a part of their uniform, and in the photos, it looks like a clear tripping hazard. But as you can see in class photos— Kate really rocked the look, and she excelled in that environment. She was good at hockey and netball and tennis. She found friends quickly. She was popular. But it's worth noting that within that social set at Marlborough, through those people that she was meeting, and actually that that, that led to her very first meeting with William. It was that sort of glossy posse that Kate was suddenly having access to. I should explain the glossy posse set is the Gloucestershire based set. So glossy as in Gloucestershire, um, who William hung around with. And that was simply because of the people who were going to her school. I mean, this was all about social mobility. I think that there is this idea that social climbing is something that's necessarily like intentional and open and bad, but that like social climbing and mobility are different things. I think that it's telling that whenever Kate's background is insulted, you know, it's always about things that are just kind of nitpicking. I mean, tell me more about that time when Carol became a target of this kind of like aristocratic gossip. Uh, What was going on then? Well, I think this is where you see a real divide between the class structure in Britain, because if you to speak to most working class or middle class people about the Middletons, they will applaud them. They they represent aspiration in the best possible way. I, I think the snobbery that you're referring to was really actually directed at the Middletons more from the upper classes and the aristocratic classes. Uh, William's friends, I hate to say it, were the ones who would sort of whisper rather snidely when Kate would turn up at Bougie, which is the nightclub that they used to go to in West London, (laughs) doors to manual. I mean, (laughs) you just think, okay, right. Well, obviously, that is a a bit of a put down. It's a bit of a derogatory reference to, to Carol's career as an air hostess. And to her full credit, Kate never rose to it. The snootiness of the upper classes levelled at what they called the en masse Middletons. I mean, this idea 
that the Middletons would turn up for a picnic at, at, at a social event, for example. And, you know, they would turn up in their pristine Land Rover that had been newly polished and they'd have brand new Fortnum Mason's hamper and, you know, all of the paraphernalia that comes with a with a very upper class picnic. But of course, alongside the sort of true aristocratic double barren titles that turn up at these events in their muddy Land Rovers with their moth-eaten blankets that are full of holes and, you know, some sort of oddly cobbled together picnic with hard-boiled eggs rather than M&S finest. Carol and, and, and Michael and the Middletons just were, they just sort of stood out, I suppose. Hard-boiled eggs. Okay, please explain. <laughs> okay, yes, I, I, I can understand why this might seem utterly alien to Americans, but when it comes to picnics in Britain, what you put in your picnic is, is really quite important. Carol would take great pride in her picnic. She would have the finest spread on, on beautiful linen tablecloths with silver cutlery and everything else, compared to probably someone who was actually really posh, and I mean posh in the true sense, shall we say, you know, they would just have nothing like Carol's spread. It's The point is that you're sort of so posh that you don't really have to bother making an effort, but the Middletons did. Still, I think it's almost perfect that Kate was raised by people who knew how to pack the perfect picnic basket and throw a great party, because I think not just anybody could walk into a situation like that and hold their own. And besides, she was also raised in a home with a lot of love. And I think both of those things are what gave her the self-confidence to be able to step into a situation like that. It made her right for the role of being a princess, but it also made her right for Prince William as a partner. Yeah, absolutely, Erin. And I think that being raised by a loving family who always had her back has been absolutely fundamental to Kate's success in this whole royal love story. And of course, it helped that William loved the Middletons, especially Carol, who used to have a picture, a screensaver on her mobile phone of the future king. I mean, that's how close they were. And so, you know, to the backdrop of this, you've got a very strong and solid relationship. That said, it did go through some serious challenges along the way. And there was a moment at the famous Cheltenham horse races, which showed just how much pressure they had to deal with. I remember very clearly a set of pictures dropping on my desk in March 2007, William and Kate at the races. At this time, remember, there's loads of speculation in the press that William's going to pop the question. Well, not according to these pictures. They told a completely different story. The body chemistry was terrible. William looked miserable. I mean, they weren't even looking at each other. So despite all the ingredients for this perfect relationship, in 2007... They split up. Still to come on Vanity Fair's dynasty, the Windsors. I think I, I, at the time, wasn't very happy about it, but actually it made me a stronger person. A fairy tale romance goes cold. And if you are watching this video, either I'm dead or I'm in a very, very, very bad situation. She said, oh, my God, I can hear gunshots. I can hear men outside. Where are they? What have they done to them? Are they dead? Are they not dead? There is one suspect, her father, the Sheikh. It's Madeline Barron from In the Dark. We've teamed up with our new colleague, Heidi Blake, at The New Yorker 
to try to answer a question about one of the richest men in the world, the ruler of Dubai. Why do the women in Sheikh Mohammed's family keep trying to run away? There's five policemen outside and two policewomen inside the house. So basically I'm a hostage. And he reminded me that Sheikh Mohammed can get me anywhere. Because you're a rich and powerful person, you can effectively break any law you want in our country and get away with it. The Runaway Princesses is available now. Follow In the Dark wherever you get your podcasts. The breakup of that perfect couple, William and Kate, just, of course, was front page news around the world. Did you ever really figure out the reason for their time apart? Yes, she alluded to the fact that it was difficult, but ultimately it strengthened her. Typical Kate, you know, seeing the positive in everything. But my understanding from the sources that I spoke to at the time, um, who were with William, who was down in Bovington, which is a part of Dorset in the UK, William was on a tank training course and Kate was in London working at the time. And so they weren't seeing very much of each other. And then when William did come back to London at the weekends... He wanted to go out clubbing with his friends. And I remember being at one of those clubs and seeing him really enjoying himself and letting his hair down. And, you know, Kate wasn't happy. You know, she was happy to wait for him and support him while he went through his military training. But it was really clear to her that he wasn't ready to commit. She wasn't going to stand by and be made a fool of. That's not in her character at all. And so they split up, which Kate later discussed in an interview with journalist Tom Bradby for ITV. I think I, I, at the time, wasn't very happy about it, but actually it made me a stronger person. You find out things about yourself that maybe you hadn't realised, or I think you can get quite consumed by a relationship when you're younger. And, you know, I, I really valued that time for me as well, although I didn't think it at the time. Looking back on it, I... There's a chance think, to recenter yourself. Yeah, definitely, you? yeah. So about 10 weeks after the breakup, the couple found a way back together. William went back to his military training, and Kate managed to complete her uh, period of growth. Well, three years of growth later, and we got the announcement that we'd all been waiting years for. I was flying back from Toronto and turned my BlackBerry on, and it literally imploded. I mean, I had so many text messages, emails, and it was all off the back of that announcement that Prince William and Kate Middleton, or Catherine Middleton, as she was referred to in that press release, were officially engaged. And I went straight to the palace uh, with a suitcase. In that suitcase of clothes, I had the very same blue Easter dress that Kate wore on her engagement day. So one of the many calls that I had in my voicemail was from the designer frantically asking me if I could get the dress back to the studio as quickly as possible. That became a hot commodity that minute. It sold out within hours. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But it was a huge, you know, the engagement announcement was a big announcement. I mean, certainly I, for one, felt like I had been waiting for that for a really long time. Again, with Tom Bradby of ITV, William and Kate spoke about the weight. Well, I think if you, when you go out with someone for quite a long time, you do get to know each other very, very well. You go, th- you go through the good times, you go through the bad times, you know, both, both personally, but also within a relationship as well. And, you know, I think if you can come out of that stronger and, um, you know, learn, as I said, things about yourself, um, you know, it's certainly, it's certainly, um, yeah... Been a good, a good. How many years? Uh, I lost count. 
He did take his time. It must be be said. Did you ever want him to... Come on. Well... No, we do. We've we've had our we've had our conversations, but I think you know it was. Um, we've know, talked it about it today well, yeah. for a while, haven't we? We've yeah. talked about this happening for a day. So Kate wasn't in the in the dark over it all. Yeah. We've been planning it for you know for at least a year, and if not longer, um, it was just finding the right time. And that was what you know, as most people people say with couples, it's all about timing. From the moment they announced the engagement, it wasn't really about them anymore. A team was going to take over the logistics of the wedding for the heir to the throne, and it was really about the country and their celebration. Since they were surrounded by people they could trust to keep an initial engagement a secret, it seems like they might have just relished a chance to, you know, spend about a year just being a couple. And from that moment on in November up to the wedding at the end of April, it was it was such an exciting time. I mean, I'm tempted to say it was just a really exciting time in my career as a royal correspondent. What you know, what, it doesn't get much bigger, does it, than the wedding of a future king? And it's not just that it was the wedding of a future king. I think Kate had a big role in this as well. She was just a sweet person who had lived a nice life, and then she met the prince, and it was love. And you can say it's cheesy, but it's also really, really heartwarming, especially for people like me who were children when Princess Diana was alive and just remember her loss so intensely. We have an attachment to William, and it just made for just like such a great romantic story. Yeah, it's interesting, Erin, hearing you talk about Diana, because on that engagement day, I remember being invited to St. James's Palace with some of the other UK press journalists to go and have a cup of tea with the couple. So we met them, and it felt very much like a new start. Kate walked in in that fabulous dress, my dress, um, and of course wearing Diana's engagement ring. It was it was the first thing I noticed and I just thought, wow, this is so significant. Mm-hmm. I mean, the symbolism of that ring. There was just so much of Diana in that moment, as there was in their wedding day that was really important to William. Mm-hmm. And you know, let's not forget that Diana had said to both William and Harry, when you marry, make sure you marry for love. And they've both done that. William actually talked about the ring with ITV's Tom Bradby. It is a family ring, yes. It's my mother's engagement ring. So I thought it was quite nice because um, obviously she's not going to be around to share any of the, um, the fun and excitement of it all. That's, this is my way of keeping her sort of close to it all. Well, I just hope I look after it. Yeah. She loses it. It's very, very special. So looking back, Britain was about to have a very different royal pairing with William and Kate certainly compared to Charles and Diana and their whirlwind courtship. You know, we'd been covering the ups and downs of this royal romance for the best part of eight years. And then, by 2010, they finally made public their engagement. This meant that the royal family could put a date in the calendar for the wedding, and it would bring the people out to the streets again to support the monarchy. William had an opportunity not to make the same mistakes as his parents and to rebuild public confidence in royal relationships. Right. With his engagement, William decided not to rush into things. But for Kate, this meant almost a decade of being primed for royal marriage. Which meant that some of the British press began referring to Kate as Weighty Katie. This idea that she'd been waiting around for a proposal, all under the weight of great expectation. I've never quite understood why Weighty Katie was such an insult. It was all like an audition. One big test. Kate's association with William from the moment after she graduated from university meant that in a meaningful way, she could never live a normal life. 
The only other person I can think of who's had a similar experience to that was Monica Lewinsky, who has said before that it was really difficult for her to find a job, partially because of the disruption that followed everywhere she went. Everywhere she went, people knew who she was. In Kate's case, it was a lot more positive than Monica Lewinsky's experience. But being a woman in the public eye at that period of time, at the height of tabloid culture, I think that must have been really difficult for Kate. But in hindsight, we can now really understand why William thought it was important for her to be there for a long period of time before committing. If you think about it, for Kate, she was always going to be under a lot of pressure. And I think it would have seemed really callous of him to disrupt this woman's life for nearly a decade if they didn't really want to get married. Well, Erin, that's exactly why Charles felt rushed into marrying Diana, because there was all this pressure that he was in his 30s and he hadn't settled down. And obviously... William didn't want to make the same mistakes of the past. And that did come with pressure. A decade-long courtship was really very, very unusual. And I think it is to Kate's great credit that she coped as well as she did. The thing is, she didn't have palace training. She didn't have a hotline to the press office. There wasn't a princess in training manual that was handed over to her. Everything that she learned, she learned on the spot. And I suppose that's where that decade of looking in was invaluable because she got to see what royal life was really like and what royal standards actually were. So in many ways, it was an audition and it was the most important audition of William's life and certainly the most important audition of Kate's. And it was a success. And this is where the real sense of celebration and joy is in evidence. They just tried to take in the scene as Her Majesty the Queen and the Duke of Edinburgh take their leave. And two very happy people, Mr and Mrs Middleton, waiting to join that procession too. And this is what it's all about. This is what the great British pageant is about. And this is why so many people come to London to enjoy what's going on. And Michelle Ruiz was covering the royal wedding back in 2011. I remember being up at five in the morning in my apartment on the upper, upper west side of New York and turning it on and, you know, literally squealing and dying over everything that I saw. It was so grand. I think the setting in Westminster Abbey, this, again, commoner sort of emerging from the Rolls Royce in this beautiful McQueen dress. Oh, that McQueen dress. It was a thing of exquisite beauty and the secrecy surrounding it. I mean, I remember trying so hard to find out who the designer was. Every journalist on the planet was. And I think hats off to the Sunday Times who revealed that it was Sarah Burton for McQueen ahead of the big day, which apparently had Kate in tears behind the scenes, which perhaps hints at, you know, some of the stress that she went through in the run-up to the royal wedding. And on the day itself, it didn't really matter. She stepped out of the car and she looked absolutely beautiful. And I remember Kate's hairdresser, James Price, telling me that when he went to Clarence's house to give Kate her updo for the evening, they were sitting on the bed, Harry, William and Kate, in their dressing gowns, Kate still in a tiara, watching the playback of the BBC's coverage of the royal wedding. It was just, it was fantastical. And I think, like, even the most hardened, black-hearted 
cynics among us, it was hard to look at that and not see some sort of like real life fairy tale playing out, as cliche as that is to characterize it. I think it was a hugely positive moment for the family and and the weddings tend to be just because of all of the pomp and circumstance and the horse-drawn carriages and the fascinators and all of this whole spectacle. You know, we don't have the monarchy in the States, nor do we have, I think, that level of spectacle around any wedding that we'd be able to tune in and watch on international television. So it does create an international moment of intrigue. And I think that's, you know, we forget that that is not accidental in any way, shape, or form. It's very strategic for the royals in the sense that continuity is their lifeblood. You know, to be able to continue passing this condition down to generation after generation, and that doesn't happen in a way without support. And to have a wedding draws all the eyes of the world onto the family in a very positive and favorable way. And it kind of carries the Windsors through to whatever the next scandal may be. It builds up a tremendous amount of goodwill and like love for this institution that, you know, can be incredibly problematic. I think that the goodwill that Michelle is describing here just explains why marriage is so fundamental to it and why William and Kate's relationship being real was so important to everybody involved. After Charles and Diana's acrimonious divorce, all of the treacly media from their early years just looked silly. Royal weddings are practically a renewable resource for the family, but they have to be careful not to overdo it. Still, we've seen that if one fails, the next can really renew the magic. As Prince William and Kate Middleton stepped out onto the balcony of Buckingham Palace, the new Princess Catherine let out a gasp of oh wow to her beaming husband. And then the moment the world was waiting for, the all-important first public kiss. It was short, it was sweet, but it was magical. This was a huge PR win for the royal family. People poured into the streets to watch this fairy tale moment. Since the 1980s, so many stories about the royals had become associated with public discomfort and scandal and grief. But now, finally, people were seeing the family in a different light. And it was poignant that despite the death of his mother, Princess Diana, William had found happiness. And he and Kate were bringing some royal wedding magic back to the UK. I think that it ignited some hope in people. It was a time where people were thinking that Princess Diana's legacy was going to move forward through her sons. Kristen Meinzer has covered the royals for various news outlets and on her podcast, When Harry Met Meghan. I think that there was also hope that these younger royals were going to connect with the people in a way that would continue the legacy of the queen. Because, frankly, Charles has never been popular. I think when William and Kate got married, there was hope of like, oh, Wouldn't it be wonderful? Look at this man who's our future king. It was a great day to just focus on that generation of royals and the future. Those little boys who, they really were little boys when their mom died. And then to see them become men, it it was a very special time to see they're, they're moving forward. During her decade as William's girlfriend, she proved that she was the right person for somebody who had lived his life in the public eye. 
She seems to have a really good head on her shoulders, and ultimately, the only way to tell if somebody can show that unflappable grace under pressure is to put them through intense scrutiny for years. Yeah, and for a marriage to survive that much public scrutiny, it needs something or someone very strong to guide it through. It's true. I mean, we can never really know what's going on behind closed doors in anybody's marriage, but there have been some signs that it has not been smooth sailing for William and Kate. For one, like, multiple biographers have said that William has a bit of a temper and, you know, has even gotten into shouting matches with his father when he was a teenager. Along with that, William has discussed dealing with trauma while working as an air ambulance pilot. Around the same time, Kate had severe morning sickness while she was pregnant, which she had with all three of her kids— Then there's all the drama with their extended family. It's a lot. I mean, that level of drama has got to test any marriage, even a royal marriage. But, you know, a royal marriage comes with another added pressure. And that is that William knows that the future of the Windsor dynasty, the future of the monarchy, depends on the success of this marriage. But we also need to talk about Prince Harry. His love story is just as romantic, but it hasn't ended up being the same huge PR win for the royals. In fact, it's been their worst nightmare. In the next episode, we look at what life is really like for the spare to the heir. I can safely say that losing my mum at the age of 12 and therefore shutting down all of my emotions for the last 20 years has had a, a, a quite serious effect on on not only my personal life, but also my work as well. That's next time on Vanity Fair's Dynasty, The Windsors. Dynasty is hosted by Erin Vanderhoof and myself, Katie Nichol, and is produced by Vanity Fair in partnership with Something Else. Lizzie Jacobs is our executive producer. Darby Doris and Brian Erstadt are our editors. Rob Dozer, Zoe Edwards, Chika Ayres, and Sylvie Lubo are our producers. Ginny Bloom is our showrunner. Basha Curten and Jessica Jones are our associate producers. And Ike Egbatola, Liz Hambly, and Peyton Hayes are our production coordinators. This episode was engineered by John Scott, and the theme song was composed by Wooly Music. Fact-checking was done by Sarah Karlevsky, and Dynasty was conceived by Vanity Fair executive editor Claire Howarth. Claire and Katie Rich are staff editorial consultants. Thank you to our guests, Tori Cadogan, Michelle Ruiz, and Kristen Meinzer. If you love the show, be sure to rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Dynasty, visit vf.com slash dynasty. And you can follow Vanity Fair on Instagram and Twitter at Vanity Fair. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. What are you guys excited to cover in the next few months? There's a new translation of The Iliad that's coming out, Emily Wilson. I'm really excited to see... Whether I can read the Iliad again, whether I'm that literate, I mean, the jury is out. I can't wait to hear Adam Driver go again in an Italian accent in Michael Mann's Ferrari. (laughs) He can't stop. I mean, and and bless him. I can't wait. Molto bene. Molto bene. (laughs) 
We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. You really don't want to miss this. Don't. Don't miss this. Don't miss it. See you soon. (laughs) 